0: Welcome to the Family Express podcast, where our destination is resilient and connected families. Come aboard with your hosts, marriage and family therapists Catherine De Bruin and Rhonda Evans, to explore the world of emotionally focused family therapy, a model developed by Sue Johnson and colleagues. Together with our guest speakers, our travels will map the EFFT landscape, highlighting lessons learned, shared fears, and the passion and curiosity that bonds our community. Right, Welcome, everybody. We are so excited for our episodes today on, of course, family work, family systems, emotional family focused therapy. Our guest today is the amazing Ryan Reyna out of Arkansas. Ryan, hi. Glad you're here.
1: Oh, hello. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. It's my honor to be with you.
0: Uh, thank you so much. Well, we're excited to hear um, your perspective on EFFT, and uh, I think we're ready to go.
2: So I know you, you've you had a long training in family systems work, Ryan. You've got your degree. You got a a PhD, I believe, MFT. Tell us a little bit about the, the family uh, systems world that you come from.
1: Yeah, I will. I, and, you know, overall, I just want to say I'm just excited for what you all are doing. And I'm excited to see the conversation move forward here, because I think I think uh, EFFT family, uh, experiential family work is this huge untapped potential that we're really at the ground floor of. And uh, I certainly am, have tons to learn. Um, so, yeah, I was just talking to you off, off uh, mic there that I, in my training, it was really extensive in terms of conceptualization.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Looking at family systems. And then it was, you know, not so clear on how to actually do it. Uh, yeah,
2: that was my grad school as well, pretty much. I ne- I had so much head knowledge, great way of thinking about things, but no idea how to actually do it with families in front of me. Yeah,
1: and I got my PhD almost 20 years ago. So it's, you know, two decades of uh sort of just feeling my way through how to actually apply this. Um, so anyway, you know, my you know, I learned really hardcore from the start, uh, not just with families, but even with individual clients you know, sort of four basic principles here. One is that all behavior makes sense in its context and specifically the relational or attachment context. And then two, uh, and these are pretty radical thoughts, actually, uh, that, that all human behavior is an effort to define the nature of relationship between two people. Uh, there's two.
2: Ooh. Uh, you <laughs> might have to say that one again. Yeah, yeah. I'm, writing, huh? I'm writing notes.
1: Yeah, I credit that to a guy named Dr. Wendell Ray, who's a, a brilliant, brilliant systems uh, professor. And then number three is that all individual behavior is a part of a whole. So, pretty obvious there. And then uh, that to some degree, all behavior has a homeostatic function, that everyone's behavior is sort of inadvertently an effort to maintain the the balance of a system. And, and so, if you lose that orientation, then it kind of takes you over to a pathologizing view.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like a very individualized focus too.
1: Linear, you know, linear causality, uh, patholo- pathologizing, which is quite popular these days. You know, right. and I've been of social media and cancel culture has taken all of those ideas to the next level. Uh, and then you see us paying the price as well as a society. I won't go that direction, but... <laughs> I think it's pretty important th- those four concepts.
2: Thank you so much for those. Um, we, we are
0: off to an awesome start. Let's this roll.
2: So that second one is blowing my brain around. I think you said something like all behavior is really about trying to figure out the relationship in front of you.
1: Yeah, the the, the verb that was there is to define. Actually, yeah, that all human behavior inadvertently, of course, outside their awareness is mm-hmm. to find the nature of relationship between people. And, you know, I didn't go into this, and I don't want to get too philosophical, but, you know, that the mammalian brain structure, above all, wants to survive. And to survive, we have to find our herd. Mm. Mammalians outside the herd, the body won't downregulate uh-huh. them. Right? So that's, that's what we say in my local clinic, is that the one thing all our clients have in common is they've lost their herd.
2: Yeah. So when you're, so tell us a a little bit about the family cases that come into your clinic and you're saying with this really strong conceptualization, you can see it in terms of this big picture, right? Like when you see, I'm sure many kids are referred with problematic behaviors, you just naturally go to thinking like what's happening in this family system.
1: Not just kids, adults as well. You know, so if I, you know, my office is four and a half miles from a a university of 35,000 students. So, you know, every fall uh, and like half of them from Texas, by the way, so that's kind of a running joke here. Uh, So we get, we get all kinds of calls from mamas from Texas, you know, uh, Mm. and sometimes not so funny because their kids have, have come Mm -hmm. to campus and they're having a really hard time. And so when they come in anxiety, depression, eating disorders, those sort of things, one of the things that we have to do really quickly is find not only what's going on with them, but where is their herd? Mm-hmm. Who do they have in their life? You know, not just for support, but even how they dance uh, with roommates, how they dance with their society, where their family is. What what was the condition of their family when they left home? All those are just as important factors in their anxiety as you know their ability to cope or, or whatever else you might conceptualize. But but locally, you know, and this would be my one of my biggest sort of. I don't know, complaints or challenges. Um, maybe barrier is a better word is that there's such a steep curve to get into family therapy. I I would say profound. Um, that's, that's really harmful. You know, one of which is a significant amount of our family cases end up being about custody. So we have parents dropping off their kids and, and not only is that not helpful. You know, but th- there's even ulterior motives around. They want the therapist notes and
2: lawyers, oh yeah,
1: oh yeah. Lawyers will sometimes send people here just to get ammunition.
2: Yeah, to win and that is. I would say I'd say about seventy percent of our cases in our clinic are also high conflict divorce cases. So I know what you're saying. So
1: that retires many, many family therapists and play therapists because it's like, that's not what I'm trained to do. That's not why I'm here. So that's that's really unfortunate, you know, and kind of along that same steep curve, um, we have such a linear culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, people literally think that their, their children's behavior is individually. It's just their issue. It's unrelated to what's going on in this broader system. So it's a whole lot of, let me drop them off. You know, when do I need to be back to pick
2: them Yeah, up? yeah, yeah.
1: Hold on, hold on, hold on. So you know?
2: you're really talking about like parental buy-in and buy-in to this family systems approach, like how to get the whole family in the room, how to get parents involved.
1: Yes, and we're swimming upstream culturally because people just don't think of it that way. And and I'm not saying parental blaming. It's it's easy for the family therapist to, to just think it's all the parents' fault and it's not that simple, right? There's the MFT research that shows Uh, uh, MFTs who who don't have children tend to be be way harder on parents than therapists that do have children.
2: I could see that. That makes sense. I think I was like that too. And then we've got the historical research that showed that mothers always used to get blamed for any family problems.
1: Right. Yeah. So we, you know, we, we kind of try to outlaw The teaching of parenting in our clinic you know because that's that has a shaming effect it has a de-empowering effect and frankly it's a lot harder than it looks and yet we need them because they are the ones that have the power in those systems and so uh that but that's that curve it's just really really hard to get that buy-in yeah that's a good way to say it catherine
2: yeah thank you that is a tremendous barrier i think a lot of our listeners face is when you've got that family systems perspective how do you convince the parents that they're important? They're the most important to their their family structure and to their child's mental wellness. And so, as you face that barrier in culture, in your clinic, in your state, um, what, what are some of the ways that you approach this?
1: Yeah, good question. I, I, I'm I'm open to learning here because we don't have it down. But you know, I, as you say that, I flash back to 2009. Uh, a large organization, the largest organization, I think, in the state uh, brought me in to, to to speak to 115 clinicians uh, that work with kids, you know, and I was asking for show of hands. How many times do you get family in? How many times do you get family as a main player? And it's just was just negligible.
2: Right, right. You're going to you're going to get me or all upset now and standing on a soapbox myself because I'm in the play therapy world. And clinicians love play therapy and they go to these massive conferences and that's all they want to do. And I I can barely ethically teach anymore in the play therapy program because I just think that we're going in the wrong direction. We're focusing more and more on a child. The child's already the identified patient and maybe getting a bit philosophical and political. But I think in an American culture, there's such a child focus already in our families, in the way we do family life.
1: Right. And that's not good for the child because it's a distortion of reality. The world is not built around you. So it's this this tricky balance between secure bonding attachment, but then also the tolerance of disruption and and letting kids realize that they're part of a team. Everywhere they go, this is a team sport. And so learning how to function in that way is key. And, and I'll say this to your point, Catherine, we can both get on a soapbox. Yeah. Yeah. I'll come back to your question at some point, I promise. But <laughs> I, I, I supervise a lot of plate therapists and I have tremendous respect for what they do. I have, I have too much knee and back pain to get on the floor that much.
2: <laughs> yeah.
1: I love that they do. Uh, but I'll say, but I'll put tension there to say, Hey, do you remember being 10 years old? Do you remember being 11? If you go home and your life is total chaos. And unsafe, what do you want? Someone to play with you or someone to get in there and fight for your family system. Mm. That's mm-hmm. not, a, not a hard question to answer.
0: Yeah. Oh, let's pause there. That feels that hits all of us, I think.
1: And I don't mean that to be negative towards play. I think it's awesome, but right. there, there needs to be something more there because no one, no one answers that question differently. It's like, yeah.
2: Yeah. It's yeah. a good way to bring it home wow
1: you want to say more about that or shall i continue
2: i i'm i'm just munching on that there's so much to say right like what does a child really need most Do they need some do they need a therapist they can meet with weekly to support them or do they need a change in their family system right and in their larger context
1: or both or both
2: yeah yeah
1: like play helps to unlock some of the 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 processing but to unlock the processing with nowhere to go with it,
2: yeah. uh, or, yeah. to go,
1: or to go to a lack of safety, uh, is that is that potentially harmful? Right, right.
2: It- right. Mm-hmm. And it, it's a difference between first-order change and second-order change. But yeah. you're right, it can also put children in a harmful position. If they're learning how to open up, they're becoming more insightful and aware, but then going home to a very broken system where they have to keep up their defenses, actually.
1: Right. So to your question, um, and I, I feel this feels almost overly informal, my answer, but um, in a prior life, I was a uh, a coach at the college level for a, for an athletics team. And so when you coach at the college level, about half your time is recruiting. So when I wasn't on the field, I was on the phone, you know, and, and mm-hmm. calling, calling 16-year-olds and 17-year-olds and, and making the case to come be a part of us. And this is how much we like you. And I'm going to come to your game Thursday, come to our game next Saturday, you know, and that's Mm -hmm. just, and that's what it feels like for me um, when I'm trying to get parental buy-in. I feel like I'm a recruiter. Um, That's not always my favorite thing to do, but that, in my opinion, that's the absolute best way I can serve that child.
2: Yeah, 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 yeah. Recruiting the parent, but I like the way you're saying it because it feels like you're saying to the parent, you're important. And I'm not going to use you like, I need you. I'm here for you. You're important, right? You see the intention, the intention behind the parents.
1: Yes. And, and speak to
2: it and heighten it.
1: I can't see your face because of uh, your microphone. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt you. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and one more extension. I want to be a part of your team. Let's be on the same team, you and me. Mm-hmm. That's why That's why I you know, don't want to use teaching parenting, which puts me mm-hmm. in power over the parental system.
2: Yeah,
1: um, yeah. Down lack of safety multiple places, even that communicates to the kid. Yeah. Uh, if a child sees me teach their parent parenting, that takes that safety away.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, so, you know, back to that train I did with all those hundreds of therapists. Mm-hmm. I, was them, uh, I did lots of sort of informal research with them about how they try to engage parents, or do they engage them at all? And one of the big things that we found is, and here's the example I use, you would never take a depressed person in, and within 20 minutes of meeting them, start giving them solutions for depression. That would be very misattuned. Mm. Somehow with family therapy, they're teaching parenting right from the start. Mm. And I think that's one Mm. of the biggest, biggest rupture areas, instead of spending time saying, hey, let me get to know you as, as a mom or whomever it might be, this is really hard, huh? This is tough. And and how do you find time for yourself? And I know you got to manage so much. So spending a lot of time walking around in the world with the parents without the child in the room.
2: Mm-hmm,
1: it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It do hmm Because I've got to, um, I've got to build an alliance there.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: With trust and, and if they can come to my office every week to hang out with Ryan, yeah, to on a team with me, yeah, and coming in and being taught how to
2: parent. Oh my gosh, Ryan, can I just say it's just so nice to sit with you, Rhonda, and I are having fun. Just it feels like we're chatting, and really appreciate your perspective and your ideas, and you're making me think a little bit now about just parenting in general, and for me being a mom of three, I can really relate to this, but it's a role that we choose to be in often that there's no training for. And it's just such a vulnerable role to be in. Like, And as a parent, like there's no one that I can run to and say, hey, how am I doing? What do you think of my kids? How's our family doing? And so when I think about sitting with parents, the way you're chatting about, I think about just coming in and and giving them like being another set of eyes and ears with them, right, and if they can somehow have that alliance with us that we're part of the team as opposed to there to judge, there's just so much judgment and criticism of parenting in general out in the world like they so they so need a a resource and and someone who's on their team with them I really love this perspective
1: I think it's so key and and we need it, and as a parent of three teenagers, half the time I'm guessing. And
0: yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> oh, good, I'm not the only one.
1: <laughs> and it's so vulnerable too. So, so your well, kids it,
2: It's everything to you, right? I mean, your kids are everything to you. It's very, very emotional, right? Um, so maybe just to make this practical back to the clinical setting, what does that mean in terms of the families coming in who've got kids who are having a very tough time? Do you actually see the child at all in the beginning or or do you – at what point are you spending all the all of this time with the parents? Would you say?
1: Yeah, I think every situation can be differently, can be handled differently. Uh, but my preferred sort of modality would be at least one session, parent without child. So, so mm-hmm. not mm-hmm. family without, as it is in some insurance codes. Um, you know, not just the signature, but the but the whole recruitment process. You know, my goal is for them to feel like I, we are on a team trying. Yeah. To, difficult
2: so you'll approach the family with that hope the parents with that hope and if they buy in right away you'll spend the majority of your time with the parents um but sometimes you've got to even work towards being able to have that access
1: well especially early yeah especially early and i just start to talk about look you know we generally kind of have some plans about how to help kids who struggle the way little jimmy does Uh, Mm -hmm. but the plans have to be adapted and we have to work as a team to find mm-hmm. this. And the only way we'll get it right is to have trial and error. And we a team approach. And and usually people, when they hear that, I, I think it's even helpful to frame of there is a plan out there.
2: Yes. Yes.
1: What little Jimmy is going through. Yes. That, that implies it's not because you're deficient. It implies yes. what little Jimmy is facing is difficult. And and yeah. it's got the trial and error thing. And I don't know the answers either, but we can find it together.
2: Yes. And so we've got we have a plan, but we have to adapt it to your particular family system. And for that reason, we need to get to know all of you.
1: Oh, and specifically the little Jimmy struggles because mm. it, that externalizes this a little bit. Okay. So I want to I want to adjust the family system towards something external as opposed to something's wrong with with you so
2: within the family. Gotcha. Yeah.
1: Then I like to rotate subsystems. That's the way I was trained. I have some great colleagues who uh are hardcore. They won't even start until the whole family's there. All of the sib I respect that. Mm-hmm. that. Structural heritage, Carl Whitaker, others who did it that way. Uh, I I just found I, I kind of like and it's it's perhaps more practical to rotate a little bit subsystem. So in other words, a session or two with with the parent who has most engagement, trying to recruit the other parent if there is one. Mm-hmm. time child alone sort of building that alliance you know and then when, when it seems like both pieces are ready doing some dyads you know and then we would love to stay in that dyad set uh diet or triad as long as as they can is kind of how i try to do it
2: yeah yeah that sounds wonderful you really get to know the system little by little i like that a lot and then i'm also thinking of what i run into in those situations is the anxiety in the family system and that the parents carry because of the child's symptoms. And how do you how do you manage that that angst or that pressure to to get to the you know the problem and the solution?
1: Yeah, I don't know that this is answering your question, but something I want to say.
2: Yes. Uh, <laughs> and
1: for a long time I just thought, you know, this is kind of just my own anxiety and perhaps it is, but as I've got gone through this profession, I'm like, no, I think that is important. If, if a parent has something really negative to say about their child, uh, in particular about their identity, it, it's one thing to say, you know, little Jimmy's having a hard time, but mm-hmm. they're going to say little Jimmy is a horrible this or whatever. I want them to bring that to me without little Jimmy. Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. That's one of my little secondary or, or third level goals early on in, in family without is I want them to vent their frustration at me.
2: Okay, like get it out in the open.
1: I don't want them to tell me about their frustration with little Jimmy in the room. Yes. I want them to send that yes. to me to protect his 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 or her identity. Um, and and so I'm sort of waiting for the parents to have that out of their system. Yeah. Like to do uh, conjoint kind of work. I think that's- Okay,
2: a really- okay. I get you. I think that's really profound. I've been uh, on the high conflict divorce cases, having the two parents come in and be in the same room if they're able to. And while that is productive time, I find it's very important to also give them each an individual session because there's just so much more that is said and laid out when they're not in front of the other person. And so, I guess in the same way, like with parents, just having that ability to really vent about their kiddo, what they're struggling with. And if we don't have the parents in the room without the child, then do we miss that, right? Does that get blocked in the system emotionally?
1: Absolutely. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And then moving it forward just a little, and then we can go where you want to with this. But, you know, as steep as the front side is, the backside of family is amazing.
2: Fast, right? Oh, my gosh.
1: Once there's breakthroughs, when you're accessing yeah. that giving system, it's so strong. Once the once the blocks are removed, it's such a beautiful thing to see the, the growth, healing, um, development chain.
2: Yeah. 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 So, because it's it's in it's intrinsic in the system, right? It's like this magic bullet that you're, you know, touching on. And it's it's not a a thing we have to create. It's just it's naturally there if we can unlock the potential, right?
1: Even uniquely so, because when couples have powerful breakthroughs, they still have so much habitual hurt Mm -hmm. that sometimes months before they can actualize these new corrective experiences. Whereas kids have so much neuroplasticity. Three or four corrective experiences with a with a parent, and they can just adap- adapt to it really quickly. And and then when the parent sees the kid change their behavior, it soothes them.
2: Yeah, and, yeah, and yeah. Kind
1: of in waves, it's such a beautiful thing to watch.
2: I saw this play out in a session I was working late uh, just two nights ago with this um, blended family, and the teenager came in, letting her parents know. That she wants to spend more time with the other bio parent. And she put it out as a declaration. I've decided I'm gonna spend way more time with, you know, the other parent. And the mom's heart was crushed. Hey, she was it was just like the worst thing she'd ever heard. Anyway, long story short, an hour and a half later, talking through all this stuff, the 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 mom and her new partner were able to tell this teen that they do family game nights because it's the primary way that they can connect with her. And she had this epiphany. She's like, wait, so we do all those game nights just because you know that I love playing games? You do that for me? And the whole thing turned around to her leaving with them and saying, can we go home and play a game together? Uh, it was just remarkable when she she had just been so frustrated, you know, in the relationship, not feeling their love and care, doubting that it existed. And the moment that she got a glimpse of how much they actually are caring for her, she softened and they were relieved and they went home like bonded. It was remarkable.
1: Most adults can't do that that quickly. So right. That's what's right. Mm-hmm. And they're lucky to have you. I mean, look like what you just said. You know, you spend an hour and a half with an hour them. and a half, and there it and goes. You stayed focused on what it's like between being together, yeah. right? After yeah, yeah. Symptoms of the child, which is hard. It's hard to yeah. get there.
2: Just uh, working through all those emotional barriers and getting back to the basics, which are naturally there. That those parents adore their kid. What did What did you mean by most adults can't get there?
1: Yeah, well, just thinking about I don't know the age of that child you were referring to. Um, but you know, less than eighteen, obviously, or you wouldn't be. Yeah, ready. 15.
2: 15 yeah.
1: yeah. So if you have that beautiful moment with two adults in the room, it just takes a lot longer to develop trust.
2: It takes more
0: more repetitions of those corrective experiences.
1: Yeah, exactly. And mm-hmm. you know, more parts work. And you know, I can I can take some of this beauty in, but I'm still in protection mode. And kids mm-hmm. Just, mm-hmm. They don't have, they don't have that. They're not that protected. You know, they're still really young and and it doesn't take quite as much most of the time.
2: And Uh, doing work, like they 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 haven't had as much build up, but also it's biological, right? Like it's wired into them with their parents, I think.
1: Yes. They truly need the parent. I mean, not only not only like emotionally, but in other ways too. So there's a, a different form of vulnerability. So if you can move those blocks, I mean, it's such a it's stunning to me at times how quickly people can take in a whole new way of being together.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I actually want to go back to, I want to undo what I said. I don't think it's so much about it being a biological connection to the parent. I think it's because it could happen with any caregiver, like even a, a foster parent, but it's a fact that that child has, has been raised by that parent, right? That attachment is is wired into their system.
1: Yeah, I, I, I do. And I, I do think there's biology here in, in really weird ways. So because I've been a foster parent as well in my personal life, have biological kids and I've had a, Oh yeah. But they're even though they, they weren't my um genetic biology, like they don't grocery shop. <laughs> they they don't know how the heat in the house works, right? So there, there's an, an, an a built-in vulnerability, a built-in mm-hmm, mm-hmm. various attachment need that's mm-hmm, there. It's mm-hmm. not the- work with adult to adult they have
2: to depend on whichever caregiver is caring for them absolutely they do yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. wow well it's, it's, is-
0: it's taking me back ryan to your to your quote about these are the ones who have lost their herd right because the herd provides care provides protection provides a, a pathway to survival And for any kid who has the feeling or the fear that they've lost the herd of the parent, they're going to start struggling, right? And then we're going to see teenagers in offices saying, I don't want to spend time with you. And that's just a sad place to be.
1: I think in the 20 years, just one more extension to what you're saying there is it changes the brain, right? Mm. So, Mm. people that can find their herd can co-regulate stress. They're resilient. Because because their body can downregulate when I go through something difficult and I can't find my base. Right. My body stays in survival mode all the time. Right. And I tell this story. In, when I teach externship a lot, my mom was a first grade teacher and I was in second grade just really quickly. Sorry, don't want to take too long, but
0: I love your stories. Right. Keep it coming. Don't don't stop.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, I would just say, uh, you know, I was a second grader, so I was just like, hey, who are the smarter kids in your class? And she would say pretty wisely, she would she would say, "You know it's really not a question of intelligence. You know some of my kids they wake up and and it's a nice, peaceful morning, and they have a hug and they have breakfast, and they you know they have someone drop them off at school or the bus, and they come in and their brains are in a space where they're ready to take in new information." Other kids wake up to the sound of violence and someone breaking a beer bottle and they don't have breakfast and they're being screamed at and they got to find their own clothes and walk to school. And they come in and their brain is just not at a place to take in new information. So it looks like it's an intelligence issue when it's really a safety issue, or we would say an attachment issue. So yeah, if people can't find their herd, they're going to have an awfully tough time being resilient, you know? And so then we're left with other forms like addiction and, whatever it may be, to to give the illusion of co-regulation, but it's all about that, at least the way I conceptualize it.
0: Co-regulation and co-burdening and being able to feel safe that you have a herd, that you can feel the herd, you can feel the protection and safety and love and comfort of the herd. That's right. so profound, Ryan. I love that. That's amazing. Yeah,
1: you know, when people think that's just for kids, but it's just as much for adults. It just looks a little differently. You know, when when we when I have a a college freshman who's like <laughs> depressed and suicidal it doesn't take that much a friend or two to do something on the weekend with and boom you can just see their physiology change so that's what gives me sort of a a, a motivation and i'm proud of what you guys are doing because we need to continue to have this conversation because it would be so easy to diagnose him
0: absolutely it would be yeah
1: teaching just coping and not recognize that his body is looking for a herd right that's what our brains do so anyway
0: Ryan, this is, has been such an amazing conversation. Catherine and I are so grateful that you can join us for this and uh, teach us some things we can learn from you. And just connecting over this just feels amazing.
2: Thank you so much for the work you're doing out there, my friend. And really appreciate just hearing your thoughts. It's really inspirational. Thank you.
1: Same to you. And I'm really excited about this new podcast. and. Uh, excited to see where this goes. And I'm looking forward to, to learning more together in the future. I think there's untapped potential with this. So, sounds really fun
0: we we agree that's why we're here yeah we're going to ta- we're going to start tapping into to people's potential and getting it out there to the to the people who need it and want it and want to thrive with it so thank you so much Ryan uh we got some great episodes coming up everybody stay tuned for more topics coming in the future and uh, once again just thank you to our our guest here Ryan Raina. thank you so much Catherine
2: All good thank you thank you Rana hope okay. we will be back here again All right, All right.
0: thanks bye
2: That's it for today, folks. Thank you for listening, and we hope
0: to see you again for our next journey.